Welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And we are in Systematic Theology 3 still and eschatology. Last time we began cosmic eschatology with the return of Jesus Christ. And so today um, we want to talk about what happens when he returns, uh, which involves two future events, uh, namely the millennium and the tribulation. Uh, there are several views regarding the millennium, as well as several views regarding the tribulation. Uh, and so our plan is just to walk through these views, simply describe the basic tenets of them. There's just no way that we could give all the arguments for and against all the various views. Uh, many large books are devoted to that. Um, so this will basically be, uh, what are the views in a broad and simplified way? Uh, and so by the end of this, uh, you'll hopefully have a place to begin on this issue and uh, we warn you out of the gate that this is not one you can probably just listen to as you drive because um, it involves some some technical things so first of all the millennium what is the millennium uh, well the millennium typically understood as a reference to the millennial kingdom uh, primarily described as people know it in revelation 20 uh, verses 1 through 6 so here's what the passage reads. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones... And they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony and of Jesus and because of his wor the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over the, these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So on an initial read, uh, this passage seems to describe a unique time in which Christ will reign in some way with his people and in a unique way. Um, and the reign here is said to be 1,000 years. Uh, and so this is what we refer to when we're talking about the millennial kingdom. Uh, now, obviously, the issue at hand is, so what does that mean? Um, mile um, means a 1,000, which is why we call it millennial reign of Christ. Uh, however, what this passage is in reference to and what it means has been the source of intense debate. Uh, and all of it, frankly, is going to come down to your interpretational approach, um, so how do you view the, um, the, the, you know, the symbol-laden literature, nature, revelation? Is it literal? Is it figurative, metaphorical? Um, that is, you know, ideological? Uh, is it allegorical, symbolic? Uh, and are each of those mutually exclusive? Uh, 
you know, so is like literal and symbolic actually two different things or can they be taken together? Like, can you literally read yeah. symbolism? Um, so th th these are the questions that you have to a answer. Um, but regardless, your view of the millennium will be a function of your interpretational approach. Uh, so as a result, there are different interpretational approaches and a number of views have ensued as a result of that. Uh, there are permutations in all of these, but our plan here is just to give them to you in a broad, general way. Yeah, so if you say, okay, I'm Amil, and then you hear us talk about Amil, and you say, well, no, no, that's not, well, that's probably because you're a subcategory within the Amil. We're, we're hitting this on a high level. Yes. So four major views. The first is that amillennialism. So if Mile is a thousand and the alpha privative, uh, which is the A, no. uh, functions to negate, then this view simply states that there is no future, meaning literal, 1,000-year reign of Christ. So instead, the millennium is a reference to the church age, that period between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, at the close of this current church age, they would argue Jesus will return. And his return will be accompanied by the resurrection of all believers and unbelievers. There will be a final judgment. And after this judgment, the new heavens and new earth will be ushered in. So during this church age, the influence of Christ is greatly reduced. Uh, that's the idea of Satan being bound and no longer deceiving the nations uh, that Revelation 20, 2 and 3 said. Uh, and, and, and it's the idea that the gospel will now expand to reach every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and that that actually began in Acts 2 at Pentecost. So it doesn't deny the present work of Satan. Rather, it sees that Satan is not able to prevent the gospel from reaching the nations and saving. Um, that first resurrection is simply talking about Christians who accept the gospel and come al or become alive in a spiritual sense, meaning regeneration. They're, mm -hmm. they're made alive in Christ. Um, the second resurrection, then, is an actual literal resurrection from the dead at that final return of Christ. And those who reign with Christ for a thousand years is simply a reference to those who have died during the church age and are presently reigning with Christ in heaven because they have to understand that that thousand years is not a thousand years. So it's anyone who's died up to this point while they're reigning with Christ up in heaven, and that's what that is speaking of. So in short, the thousand years is a figurative expression intended to be a reference to the church age. Again, it is not a literal thousand years. Yeah. Uh, second view is what's then called post-millennialism. Uh, this view sees Christ's return as taking place after the millennium, so hence post-millennium. Uh, this position states that we are currently in the church age, um, but that this age uh, will eventually evolve or morph into the millennium. Um, the, basically, the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church is something that's going to gradually increase over time, and this increase is what will eventually usher in the millennium, which in post-millennialism is typically described as this golden age of peace, prosperity, and righteousness. Yeah. So in their view, the, the golden age, it may be a literal thousand years or it may not be a literal thousand years, but that's not really the point. Uh, rather, the millennium is simply a symbolic way of speaking about this golden age. 
Um, so on our first episode in eschatology, we talked about how eschatology shapes practice. Um, this is why many post mills are heavily invested in things like politics, starting schools, so on and so forth. It's because they're seeking to see Christianity spread in a greater way um, as they're looking to bring in that, that golden age, if you will. So examples of this that maybe people would know, uh, a guy like Doug Wilson, uh, he talks a lot about politics, um, talks a lot about starting classical schools, uh, opening Christian businesses, so on and so forth. Um, Jeff Durbin's another one. He stands in front of abortion clinics seeking to change people's minds. None of that is wrong um, in and of itself, but it is driven from their eschatology. Which actually I applaud them for. They're if, faithful if, to it. Yeah, yeah, they're faithful to it. Um, and it's interesting also is that uh, they argue that post-mill is the only uh, optimistic view of the end, that everyone else has a pessimistic view. Um, and so it argues for why bother getting involved? Why bother changing? Because everything's going to go to hell in the handbasket and then Jesus is going to come. So why bother? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's very appealing to people who are afraid. They're seeing things happening and they're like, we we need to do something. And and then they hear about this whole post-mill idea, which used to be very, very unpopular for the longest time. Really, it, it rose to uh, ascendancy just prior to World War I and then dropped off the map because World War I was so horrific. And it's starting to make a comeback now, at least in the Western church. Yeah, most of your Puritans were post-mill. That's yeah. yeah, people don't know that, is that when they established the, um, uh, the colonies— these were Puritans fleeing, and they were coming to establish the new Jerusalem. They were going to bring that that golden age in by finally being able to adhere to the things of God, and and that was that's how the, our nation kind of became seen as a city on the hill and that kind of idea. So yeah, very much so. Yeah, um, and uh, interestingly, depending on which kind of post-mill you, you're talking to, some believe this gradual increase will take so long that they believe we're still currently in that early church. Yeah, Doug Wilson would say it that way, uh, at least he did when I was talking to him. Um, he says that in it's going to take thousands upon thousands of years so that when they look upon our time, that church history at that point will refer to us as being part of the early church, which I'm like, huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then after the millennium, or what's just referred to as this golden age, Christ at that point will then return. Uh, after Christ returns, there'll be the resurrection of both believers and unbelievers. There will be a final judgment. And then after the judgment comes the new heavens and new earth. All right. The next one is called classical historic premillennialism. Um, this is a position of many uh, of the early church, hence historic or classical. In this view, Christ will return before the millennium, the thousand years, hence pre-millennium. According to this view, though, we're still currently in the church age, and at the end or the close of the church age, there will be a literal seven-year period of great tribulation, which is talked about in Revelation 3.10. This tribulation is a horrendous time of rebellion by unbelievers. The wrath described as being associated with the tribulation is human wrath, satanic wrath, and divine wrath. And this is what makes it so bad. 
It's an intense time of tumultuous realities where God has pulled back on his restraining grace in some significant ways, where he basically no longer restrains evil uh, as it is right now. Um, Christians who are alive at the end of the seven-year period will meet Jesus in the air uh, and then descend with him back to earth to reign with him during the millennial kingdom. So, a passage, First uh, Thessalonians four thirteen to seventeen, Paul writes, "But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord." will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And so verse 17 is where that idea of rapture uh, comes. It, it's literally the word for rapture, to be caught up. Yeah. Um, however, this view does not see the rapture as a secret rapture, uh, a sudden rapture. Rather, it's simply the idea that they will rise, meet Jesus up in the air as he's descending, and they will then descend the rest of the way with him to the earth. So since this seven-year period will end with Christ returning to the earth, once he returns, that will then initiate the millennium. So this view sees the millennial reign of Christ as an actual literal thousand-year time period of him reigning on the earth. So most in this camp say Jesus' return will be him descending back to the Mount of Olives, which is the literal place from which he ascended. And as such, the capital city of this earthly millennial kingdom will be Jerusalem. So when Jesus returns, all believers who have died will be resurrected to reign with him. This is that first resurrection spoken of in Revelation 20, 4 and 5, versus uh, amillennial, and actually postmillennial too. Uh, they would argue that first resurrection is just being born again. Uh, this one says, no, that's the first resurrection. Um, after the millennium is finished, then Satan will be released for a brief period of time in verse 7. He will lead one final literal battle against Jesus, but Christ will emerge victorious. And so it says when in Revelation 20, uh, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners, excuse me, of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand at the seashore. And they will come up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who is deceived, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So after this victory, there will be this final judgment, and at that point, unbelievers who are dead will be raised up to the judgment. This is the second resurrection implied in verse 5. You don't want to be part of that one because it means you're an unbeliever. 
So again, chapter 20, 12 and 13. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were, which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. So here we see that book, singular, and books, plural. The book, singular, is called the book of life, which are written the names of the believers. The books, plural, recorded all the deeds of mankind, specifically unbelievers. Unbelievers will be judged on the basis of their works, which will result in eternal condemnation. Some think that believers will also be judged by the books, plural, but for their works, at which point God will issue eternal reward or loss thereof. So for the believer, this is not a judgment for salvation, but a heavenly reward. However, it's not stated, but merely extrapolated. So if we are judged for reward or loss, therefore, this seems to be the time it may happen, but it's hard to be actually definitive. After this judgment, then it will give away or give way to the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, and then a final view uh, is what's called pre-tribulational or sometimes referred to as dispensational premillennialism. So this, this is the premillennial view that is just discussed. Um, but in this view, the church will be secretly raptured, secretly raptured and taken out of this world as Christ secretly comes for the church. So Christians will be in heaven at this point, and they will therefore not go through that tribulation. Uh, this view states the tribulation is not actually designed for believers nor for the church. Um, they have been promised exemption from this, and they'll, they'll quote, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Revelation 3.10. So 1 Thessalonians 1, 8-10 says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that they have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And they'll view that language of the wrath to come as a reference to the tribulation. Right. Uh, Revelation 3.10, uh, here, um, writing to the church of Sardis, says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, this is Jesus talking, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth, or literally earth dwellers. Um, so there, that hour of testing is viewed as the tribulation as well in this view. So after the seven-year tribulational period, which the church again is not part of, the church at that point will return back to earth with Christ and establish the physical, earthly, literal, millennial reign with Christ for a thousand years. Um, at the end of that reign, uh, the forces of darkness, which are led by Satan, will pitch a battle with Christ and his forces. Um, this attempted battle will end before it even begins. <laughs> yeah, um, it ends poorly for him. <laughs> yeah, there, there will be, a at that point, uh, after that, a final resurrection. There'll be a judgment, and then there'll be a consignment, um, and then that will all culminate in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, most pre-tribulationists have more to say about the seven-year tribulational period. Um, so, so during this time, they say God will redirect his attention toward the Jews, uh, who in mass quantity will acknowledge Jesus as that prophesied Messiah, Zechariah 12, John 19, 37. 
Um, and remember, the church is gone during this time, so this is why God is now choosing to again direct his attention toward his people, the Jews. Um, and this is what distinguishes this view apart from classical or historical premillennialism. Um, the church age will be over at this point, um, and the age of the tribulation will be, if you could phrase it that way. Um, the church age is the age in which the fullness of the Gentiles are coming in, so like Romans 11, 25. Um, so once that is finished, God will direct his attention back to the Jews during the tribulation, and as the Jews begin to turn, God will be shown to be faithful to some of those still unfulfilled promises to Israel. Um, and these promises, of course, will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom, which immediately follows that seven years of tribulation. So when we, when we talk about the tribulation, understand that that is a debate that's only taking place within premillennialism. Post mills don't talk about it. Ah mills don't talk about it. Other than to mock it or laugh yeah, well, about it, right? Right. right. <laughs> um, yeah. Those dispies. <laughs> right. So the, the, there are different views within premillennialism as to how then you should understand the tribulation. So it just gets more complex. Um, tribulation is a doctrine that's primarily drawn from Daniel twelve, um, and then be, um, becomes correlated with the seven bowls, the seven trumpets all those things you see unfolding. Um, the number of days in Daniel, if you add them up, they equate to roughly seven years. Um, and so it's therefore understood to be a seven-year tribulation. That's where the seven comes from. Some believe the church will be raptured before the tribulation. Those would be pre-trib people. Some believe the church will be raptured halfway through the tribulation. They would be mid-trib. And then others believe the church will actually endure um, through the tribulation, at which point Christ will return for his church, usher in the literal thousand-year millennium. Those would be post-tribs. All right. So interpretational approaches. So how do we sort it all out? Uh, if those are the four main views, which one is correct? Again, there are all sorts of permutations and nuances within each one of these views. Each one of these views has some sort of a biblical warrant, and each of these views have ideological and theological reasons, as well as implications. And each of these views have problems. Um, the key to determining what you believe is bound up with your interpretational approach. So first, if you primarily see the book of Revelation as taking... Ouch, I'm sorry, my knee is just popping in and out. It's really fun. Anyhow. Uh, it, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> there's nothing you can do. I mean, it is what it is. So it's back in now. Okay, so first, if you primarily see the book of Revelation as taking place in the future, then you're a futurist and will be a premillennialist. Uh, you may not know that, but <laughs> that's what's going to happen. You would approach your interpretation more literally. Uh, yeah, uh, the second interpretational approach is if you take the exact opposite, and you see the book of Revelation as something that has primarily already happened. Um, typically, uh, it's said to be happening at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, um, and these people are what are called preterist. Uh, it's a Latin word. It just means something in past. Um, so for this view, Revelation 1.1 is the definitive statement, which frames out the book. So it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So they take that very 
I mean, very literally in the sense of like, it's going to happen very soon. Um, by the way, they also think the book of Revelation was written like previous to 70 AD. Yes. Very, very yeah. early. I hold to a night around 95 AD, but theirs is in the 60s. Right, 50s, 60s, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's amazing, though, how much these views affect other things in the Bible and people are not aware of it. Mm -hmm. um, anyhow. Yeah, 100%. Um, so again, they're, they're called preterists. Now, within preterism, you have shades as well. There's partial preterists. There's full preterists. Uh, partial preterists, they maintain that all biblical prophecy, uh, so like Daniel, some of those books, including the whole of Revelation, except the final two chapters have already been fulfilled. Except for the coming of Christ. Yeah. Full preterists, or sometimes are referred to as consistent preterists, um, they believe that all biblical prophecy, including the final two chapters of Revelation, have already been fulfilled. We so, call them heretics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it actually is because they they look at things like Matthew twenty four and and it's like yes. then that generation will not pass away until I return, and they take that generation to mean the generation that Jesus is talking to, and so Christ must have returned spiritually. Yeah. And so they actually believe that Christ has come again in a spiritual sense. New and, heavens and new earth yep. already fulfilled. Yeah. Yep. So they, they believe that whole Olivet Discourse is yep. fulfilled. Yep. Um, it's actually fun. So people jump on these bandwagons, and they don't really, because it fits where they're at, and they don't really understand there's a lot going on there, and most people are not aware of it. Uh, Jeff Durbin, Doug Wilson, they're partial preterists. Yeah, yep. Um, so as you mentioned, full preterism is typically deemed as heretical because it sees the second coming of Christ as already having happened. Um, but regardless of what kind of preterist you are, the millennium has been fulfilled in 70 AD in some symbolic or spiritual way. And so basically you're, you're a mill in terms of the millennium. It's not yeah. really, though obviously post mills are there too. But yeah, yeah, it gets it gets weird. Um, third, if you view the Book of Revelation as something which is unfolding over a long period of time, where it began with the first coming of Christ, and will finish in the future at his second coming, then you're what is called an historicist. If this is your position, you don't approach Revelation literally. It's it's symbolism that's still unfolding. You're looking at major symbolism in Revelation and equating it with major events throughout the history. An example is the harlot of Babylon in Revelation 17. It's typically said to identify as a papacy of Rome. This is a rather subjective approach and difficult to defend. Uh, if you hold to this view, though, you will still end up being post-mill or a-mill. Yeah. Um, and then fourth, uh, if you view the book of Revelation... Uh, a temporally, um, where elements of the book can correspond to just various realities in the world, um, you're called an idealist. Um, so, so this is different than historicist in that it's not trying to match up specific events in Revelation with specific events or people yeah. in history. Yeah. Um, rather, it views the various events in Revelation as just being typical of what will happen over and over again throughout history. Uh, so, for example, the, the church will always be in a struggle with Satan. So that event of the great dragon, which is Satan being ready to devour the offspring of the woman that we see there in Revelation 12, that's not talking about a specific moment in which Satan attacks the church. 
either in past, present, or future. Rather, it's simply emblematic of the struggle that will always be present. Um, so if, if you hold to this position, you are either a-mill or in some cases post-mill. Yeah. Uh, and the reason is because you're still going to look at it through a heavy symbolism. Uh, the text itself is not the, – the, what is the text actually saying is less important than the symbolism that you understand it to say. So then there's a fifth point. Uh, there's, and this is one I, I, I would hope you, as you're listening to this, you would take away and think about. There's this huge need to understand that your view of the millennium is not actually based on the Revelation 20. That, that, that's not the only place. Behind all of these views are actually very big, powerful hermeneutical and theological systems at play. And this is where I think most people struggle. I, on, no matter where you land, they don't really know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two key ones that you really should be aware of, though, and, and I'll just quickly point them out. You should ask yourself, what is the relationship between church and Israel? Are they one and the same? some sort of replacement going on? Has the church replaced Israel in some way? Uh, Is it a physical versus spiritual reality, such as, well, we have the nation of Israel, it's a physical nation, but the church is a true spiritual Israel? What, what, What do you understand? And then, of course, why? And then the second one is even bigger, and that is, what is the relationship between the Old and New Testaments? The fancy, uh, term about that, you've heard us say it in the past, is continuity and discontinuity between the Testaments. Um, how, how do they relate to each other? Have you ever even thought about that? Does the New Testament provide a hermeneutic to properly understand the Old? Uh, second question, does the prophecy of the Old Testament still stand on its own? Or is it changed now into a spiritual prophecy for the church? Meaning, you have look at Old Testament prophecies where it's talking about Israel and what God is going to do in the future. That hasn't happened. So do those still apply to Israel, or do they now apply to the church who is the spiritual Israel? That's what you have to ask yourself about. If the church is really the true Israel, then what part of the Old Testament do we still do? What do we change? What do we ignore? So quick example of that would be Sabbath. When's the Sabbath? Well, the Bible teaches it's the seventh day, Saturday. But we call it now Sabbath Sunday, a a lot of churches. Why? It's a continuity, discontinuity issue. Nowhere in the New Testament does it call it the Sabbath. So how did they come up with that? They came up with it because uh, in many areas they viewed the church as replacing Israel, and now the Sabbath day is on the day of Christ's resurrection, which is Sunday. So these are huge questions that most never work through, and the result is that they end up buying into a system, millennium, that makes sense to them, and so they, in many ways, become a pan-millennialist. In, in one way or another, they don't really care. They figure it all pan out in the end. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, there you go. Believe it or not, um, this is simply a high flyover, um, and it barely scratches the surface on how complex the issues can truly become. Um, but whenever you hear someone teach on Revelation, the point is understand that they're coming at it with a lot of working presuppositions regarding how to even interpret the book. Um, so as a result, most pastors just tend to shy away from from the book of Revelation because of the complexities. Uh, and as a result, many cannot actually tell you what their millennial position is. Most will either adapt the view of their favorite preacher 
uh, or they'll just say, it doesn't really matter, it's not really the point. Um, but in either case, they'll adopt whichever view suits what they're desiring to do. Like that one pastor we keep referencing who decided to become a post-mill because um, he wanted to start classical schools and Christian businesses. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, and yeah. And and all of those problems with the COVID and everything else and restriction in California. So he packs up, moves to Texas to start a new one. But his rationale to abandon his church in California and with a bunch of people and move was, how do you do that if you're in submission to the governing authorities unless right. post-millennialism is the answer? Yeah. <laughs> Bam. Yeah. So understand part of eschatology or cosmic eschatology is after the return of Christ, you have to deal with what's going on with this millennium and what's going on with this thing called tribulation. Um, so hopefully this gives you a place to begin in your own study. Um, you and I would be what are called futurists. Um, yes, we're the fourth one. Yeah, so we believe that there will be a literal 1,000-year um, reign. reign of Christ. And we're right. <laughs> yeah. What's your tribulational position? I'm post-trib. Okay. I, w I grew up raised pre, but yeah, I don't hold to that. So we I, that's why I preach the way I preach, actually. So I, I'm preparing the church, if that time were to come, to suffer well mm -hmm. and be faithful. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Because like that First Thessalonians passage where it says that the, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive shall be caught with him, and then they will be with him forevermore. Um, there's no place in there. It doesn't seem that that's talking about his second coming, right? And that's and that doesn't allow for then that seven year period where we're raptured up, stay up in heaven with him for that period of time, then come to the second coming. That I actually had to take every single passage was assignment in theology. Every passage talked about um, the coming of Christ, all the terms, and then exegete. The, the entire surrounding context. And just at the end of it, I, I'm like, I don't think I can be a pre-trib anymore <laughs> because all of those passages, they, they could not allow for that. Um, it's a logical one, like, well, you know, people will say, well, you, you quoted them, uh, that we're not destined for wrath. Mm -hmm. And the great tribulation is the day of his great wrath. And so the the assumption, though, is that that's the wrath that the tribulation. Yeah, yeah, and and my response back is, or it's that eternal judgment of God, which is that soteriological wrath, um, eschatological wrath, where He then pours out His wrath for all eternity upon them. That's not what we're destined for, and I think that's a better sense of it. But yeah, I'd agree with you on that. Um, so, in any event, here you go. Uh, hopefully it gives you a place to begin. And if you have any questions, please let us know. Uh, we'd be uh, quite interested in doing an episode where we can just answer questions on this as best as we can. Uh, so we would say do write in. Um, but if not, uh, next time we'll discuss the resurrection and final judgment. Uh, so until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. Let us know your thoughts on the millennium and tribulation. Don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Connect with us on Facebook and Instagram and tell a friend.